Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. chapter 3 in your Bibles. While I'm writing on the board, let me solve the mystery for those of you who were trying to read my t-shirt underneath this pink shirt. I didn't realize when I got dressed this morning that my t-shirt was going to show through this shirt. But the t-shirt fortunately says, Jesus plus nothing. And so now you know what my t-shirt says and you won't spend the rest of the morning trying to cipher out what it says. And yes, it is a shirt that was printed and came to me from Australia. And you can fill in the blanks after that. In English letters, I have just written two words on the board. Nomos. Nomos comes from the root Nemo, even though it looks like we're finding Nemo. The word Nomos is the word that is translated law 
All the way through the New Testament, Paul is going to talk quite a bit about law this morning. And you need to have in your minds his sense of what that word nomos really means. The word nemo means a distributing. It's a word that was used even for the distributing of food, money, care for other people. The word nomos is a distribution of not just commands, the way that God distributed his commandments and his ordinances out to Israel and then demanded that they follow it. It's not just limited to that when we say law. It is also a dispensing of a way of life, a way of thinking. It's an educational word, this word nomos. Because Paul is going to use the word law a couple of different ways here. One of the ways that he's going to use it is he's going to refer to the law and the prophets. And that phrase, the law and the prophets, is really just a nickname for the whole of the Old Testament. You find that all the way through the New Testament that the Jews would refer to their scripture as the law and the prophets. We've talked before about the fact that the word Tanakh, which is also a nickname for the Old Testament, is really just a combination of three Hebrew words that mean the law, the prophets, and the writing. The Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketavim, and that's the law, the prophets, and the writing. When you hear the phrase, the law and the prophets, usually the writings are just sort of subsumed into the law part. And Paul is going to say it's written in the law, but then he's going to quote the Psalms, which technically fall under the writings. And yet in Paul's mind, that's part of the teaching, the dispensation of the teaching of the ordinances of the Old Testament. Paul also, though we won't see it in the text this morning, Paul was accused of being lawless. He was accused of being antinomos. And he says it's not that we're lawless, we're just not under the law of Moses, but then he says we are under the law of Christ. And what he means by that is not we are under a series of commandments that are equatable to the commandments that came down from Sinai. What he means by that is we are under the dispersing of the teaching of Jesus. So when you hear the word nomos, when you hear the word law, realize that it has a much wider berth than just Ten Commandments written on stone coming down from Sinai. But then to keep it even more confusing, Paul is going to refer to the commandments that came down from Sinai as the law. And he doesn't always tell us law of Moses. He just knows that his listeners are going to understand that when he says nomos, he's talking about that law. But then when he says the law and the prophets, he knows that his listeners are going to understand that as being the Old Testament. He knows that when he says the law of Christ, that he's talking about the teaching of Christ. So the word nomos has, as I just said, a wide berth. We have to keep that in mind or you're going to get confused with what we're just about to read. Now, what we're just about to read is a continuation of everything we've been talking about for the last two weeks. We've already established that in chapter 3, Paul is talking particularly to his Jewish audience. His Jewish readers believed that their association with Abraham, their descendants from Abraham, was enough to guarantee them justification before God. And now he is telling them that no, even their heritage, even their circumcision, even though they have the law and the prophets, even though they have the benefits that were given to them through the oracles of God, nevertheless, they're still guilty. Everybody's guilty. Jew and Gentile, everybody's guilty. So he's really going to bear down on that idea by quoting Old Testament scripture. He's going to quote the law and the prophets so that the Jews will understand that their own scripture has already accused them even though they have all these benefits. Got all that? Now, we who are reformed people, we understand that the Bible says that human beings are depraved, that we are sinful. That's why we so desperately need a savior, is because we are depraved. 
the first of the tulip doctrines, says that we are totally depraved. Now, oftentimes when people teach on total depravity, they will throw in the caveat that by totally depraved, we're not saying that men are as bad as they could be. In other words, we mean that people are not just unrestrainedly wicked all the time. People aren't just running around exuding as much evil as they possibly can. We're not killing each other. We're not constantly committing adultery. So we're not quite as bad as we could be in our actions because the grace of God and the spirit of God has restrained the evil, the wickedness of men. But with what we're about to read and with what I'm about to read for you from the Old Testament, from the Law and the Prophets, we have to conclude that when it comes to man's spiritual state, we are, in fact, as bad as we can be. I mean, when Paul starts writing from Ephesians 2, Josiah read Ephesians 1 for us this morning, but when you start reading that we were walking in darkness that we walked after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air, I'm going to go on record as saying, that's pretty darn bad. And then when you add to it everything that the Bible continues to say about your spiritual condition before God, and you understand how God sees you, well, it's totally depraved. The totality of our spiritual well-being is dead in trespasses and sins. And so we here at Grace Christian Assembly, we here at Grace Christian Assembly, keep insisting that it has to be, salvation has to be a matter of grace. Grace, 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 grace. It has to be that because it simply cannot be Leon. It simply can't be you. It simply can't be your actions. It can't be something you've done. It has to be the grace of God doing for you what you simply cannot do and will not do because not only do you not have the capability, you also don't have the willpower to actually do anything so very good that it would make up for all your extreme badness. You got that? Okay, that's all introduction. For those of you who are visiting GCA this morning for the first time, introductions do not count against my time. So I just want you to know that. Isaiah 64, 7, reading from the New American Standard Bible, says, you you may want to turn to these, but you don't have to. I'm just going to read them out quickly to you to give you some sense of the background for what Paul is going to write. Paul is writing to his Jewish audience and quoting right from the Old Testament so that they know that their own scripture has already condemned them. He's not just making up some new thing. Now that Jesus has come, that doesn't take you from being righteous, justified people to being bad people. He's arguing you've always been seen as totally depraved. Isaiah 64, 7 says, there is no one who calls on your name. No one who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have delivered us to the power of our iniquities. God has delivered us to the power of our own wretched sinfulness. The King James says in that same verse, there is none that calls upon your name, none that stirs himself up to take a hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of your iniquities. Now think about that for just a moment. Because Isaiah, the great prophet, has now told all of Israel that there's nobody in their collective group who ever stirred themselves up to go seek God. Well, if that's the case, if nobody ever woke up one day and said, you know what I should do? I should probably go chase after God. I'm suddenly aware of my own wretchedness, my own sinfulness. I think going after God is a good idea. Nobody ever did that. Nobody ever thought that. Mm -hmm. To begin with, sinful people don't know how sinful they are. And part of their sinfulness is their ego. And their ego and their pride will make excuses for their sinfulness. 
Which is why you can ask sinful people, are you a sinner? And they'll say, I'm not that bad. Or they'll start listing their credits. Or they'll start telling you that, well, they're not Hitler, you know, so they must be better than that. Because sinful people, by their ego, will make excuses for how genuinely sinful they are. In other words, the phrase that I've used over and over again, sinful people are too sinful to know how sinful they are. You got that? And so if people are in fact that wretched, that depraved, that sinful, then there's no one who ever stirred up himself to go after God. Okay, so is there anybody in this room, you're at church in a, on a Sunday morning. You drove from Atlanta on a Sunday morning to be in church this morning. Is there anybody in this room who'd be willing to say, I, I think I do kind of know God. Your hands ought to all go up at that point. Because you all have some sense of God in your life. That's why you're here. You have some sense of understanding of the Bible. You have some sense of Christianity and the necessity of Christ. Where did you get that? You didn't get it from yourself. You didn't get it by contemplating your navel. You didn't sit down with a bunch of books and figure it out one day. It is God who came to you because you did not stir up yourself to go to God. It had to be that God came to you. It's one of the things that makes Christianity, biblical Christianity, so unique in the annals of history. If you read any other religion, if you even read Greek and Roman mythology, you will read about people seeking God. You will read about people trying to get to God by killing the infidels or by making deals with the demigods or by working enough good works or by anything they can do to get to God. But biblical Christianity is the only religious document you'll find in all of human history that talks about God seeking men. And that's unique. Anytime you hear somebody say, you have to stir yourself up, you have to stir up your faith, you have to whip up your own faith because you've got to go to God. You've got to make a decision. You have to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. You need to come down an aisle. You need to go on a crying jag up here on the altar at the front of the church. You have to, anytime they say that, they are essentially saying, you have to stir yourself up to go convince God to save you. But the Bible says, no one ever did that. So we need to eliminate that from our religious thinking. And we have to understand that if you know anything about God at all, if you're concerned about the Bible at all, it's because God came to you. And if God came to you, well, that's just really, really good news. If God came to you, considering everything else he's got to do, Considering the fact that he's busy keeping the universe spinning, considering the fact that he's keeping every cell alive, considering the fact that he's feeding baby lions, considering the fact that he's keeping his universe intact, and then he bothered to come to you and enlighten you when you in fact were a deserving hell-bound sinner, who the Bible says you were an enemy of God. In the darkness, at enmity with God, and he, despite your enemy status, came to you. I'm saying all that just to say, that's grace. Yes, that is. That's just kindness from God. That's just goodness from God. Yes. I mean, how God could like me? Come on. I know people who don't like me. And God decided to kill his son for me and then decided to give me the knowledge that that actually occurred and that he had chosen me, written down my name before the foundation of the world. Well, that's just bigger than I can handle. 
I have to duct tape my head closed to be able to contain that kind of knowledge. That, that's, that's wisdom that's just far, far beyond human capacity. And yet it's exactly what the Bible says. Okay, so Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 8 in describing us, in describing the way that God sees human beings. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Aren't you glad about that? Wouldn't it be terrible if God reached down to you and couldn't quite reach? I was trying so hard to get Micah, but if, if he had been like three steps this direction, I could have gotten him. But sorry, my arm was a little short on that one. The Lord's hand is not so short that he cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, that's your sinfulness, have made a separation between you and your God. That's what the separation is. The separation is you're depraved. And he's holy. This is an ironic moment, actually, to be standing here and reading this, because on Wednesday nights, at this moment, as we've been teaching our way through the book of Job, we're at the point where God is explaining himself. And we're at the point where he has now gone beyond his control of all nature, so-called, and beyond his control of the universe and his creation of all things and his caring for all of the animals within his domain. He's gone past that, and this week we're going to reach the point where he just simply starts talking about his own Uniqueness, his own aseity, his own power, his own self-enlightened state, his own, his own complete holiness, his, his godhood and everything that means. So on one side, on Wednesday nights, we're talking about the completely righteous, holy, separate God. And then Sunday morning, here we are talking about the completely sinful and utterly depraved and totally separated human being. And I want you to feel that distance because that's the distance he came to get you. That's why it's important that his arm is not too short to come that distance to you. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In other words, his ear isn't dull of hearing. It's your sinfulness that has made him stop hearing you. That's a huge separation. Verse 3 says, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously. That means to plead righteously to God. And no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and they speak lies and they conceive mischief and they bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave a spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works, which is what Adam and Eve attempted to do. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. And there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. And whoever treads on them does not know peace. That's peace with God. Okay, so can we conclude from that that the Old Testament already states that the Jewish people are evil? So it's not just Gentiles. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets already state that human beings are intrinsically evil. But wait, it gets worse. Psalm 14 verses 1 to 3 say, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds. 
There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one that does good, not even one. Okay, that's in the Psalms. Now you've got the Psalms, the writings, and the prophets all declaring that the Jewish people, despite having the law, despite having the ordinances of God, despite having the oracles passed down to them from their forefathers, despite having covenant relationship with God, nevertheless, they cannot justify themselves because they're just too intrinsically evil to actually do that. Well, David's not done. David actually repeats the same idea In Psalm 53, the first three verses say, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. By the way, have you heard anybody lately declare there is no God? Let's say you're the governor of Virginia. Okay, was that too political? (laughs) Let's say you're all the people in New York who stood up and applauded the idea that you could kill babies out of the womb. They're essentially saying, there's no God. There's no consequence. There's no judgment. It doesn't matter what we do. Let's just go our own way and make up our own rules. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there is anyone who understands, anyone who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become unprofitable, says the King James. The NASB says, together they have become corrupt. And there is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 36, the first four verses say, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, before the eyes of the ungodly. For his sin, his transgression, for it flatters him in his own eyes. That means people love their sin, and that's just a fact. People like what they're doing, or else they wouldn't do it. For it flatters him in his own eyes. Concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, and he has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. The very thing he should despise, that's what he's for. And then he makes excuses because his own sinfulness, his own ego, his own sense of well-being and pride flatter him. Okay, that's all the Old Testament background for what Paul's about to write. Because I began by saying, Paul isn't just making up something out of whole cloth. He's saying, this is what your scripture already says about you. Because he's continuing, as I've said for several weeks now, to level the playing field. He wants everybody, Jew and Gentile, to recognize their need of a Savior. And the only way to get there is to start with, you are all sinful. You are all corrupt. You are all dead in your trespasses and sins. You are all blind. You are all in the dark. You are all walking after the course of this world. You are all walking after the devil. The prince of the power of the air has you in his clutches. Now, by the way, theological consideration here. Notice that the Bible only describes two categories. You're either saved and in Christ, or you're a child of the devil. There's no neutral position in the middle. People like to think that they're just overall kind of good and then they think well if I add Jesus to my already kind of goodness well then I'm just kind of better than I used to be but if I don't add Jesus to my kind of goodness I'm still pretty darn good Bible doesn't say that the Bible says there's two categories you're either the seed of the woman or you're the seed of the serpent you're a child of light you're a child of darkness 
You're either among the redeemed or you're walking after the prince of the power of the air. Those are the only two options. And according to Paul, your natural state as a human being born into this sinful world, born after Adam's sin, the only option for you in your natural state is dead in trespasses and sins. There's nothing in the middle. Now we're finally to Romans 3. That was all introduction. I'm just going to keep introducing. Yeah. Romans 3, we're starting at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? That is Paul saying, are we Jews better than those Gentiles? The answer from most Jews would be, well, yes. Of course we're better. He's already said, what advantage does the Jew have? He's got circumcision and he's got the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the very writing of God. So any Jew at that point would say, well, well, yes, we're just intrinsically better, which is why they would call Gentiles dogs, because they were unclean. They didn't even know how to be ceremonially clean. They didn't even know anything about Yahweh. They hadn't been instructed. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the ordinances. So yes, we're just better than they are. Paul says, no, not at all. You're not better than them, and that's why he's now going to reach into the Old Testament, into things I just read, so that he can declare your own scripture already condemns you. So don't be thinking all high and mighty about yourself. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, no, not one. There is none that does good, no, not one. So don't be starting to think, yeah, but I'm the one. Yeah, but my works are kind of good. I, I'm, a, I'm better than him. I can find people in life that I'm doing better than. So on a relative scale, I'm doing pretty good. Well, Isaiah has already told us that all our righteousness is filthy rags. So even the things you would take to God in order to say, here are my righteousnesses, that God views those as filthy, bloody, dirty rags. So you're going to feel good about that? One of you kids try that someday. Mom, I got you this. Dad, I made this for you at school. It's a filthy, bloody, dirty rag. You love me, right? Yeah, that's not going to work. And yet people think they're going to take their filthiness and present it to God, and he's going to go, oh, you cute little thing, you noogies for you. I love you so much. You tried. That's not God. No, God is either going to accept you wholly and completely, utterly righteous and justified on the basis of what Christ has done, or hell forever, outer darkness. Worm never sleeps, fire's never quenched. Those are the two options. And look at the way you're described. There's none that does good. No, not one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. What that means is even when you talk, the stuff you talk is dead man's talk. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. And the poison of asps is under their lips. Okay, this will be fun. This is going to be another one of those moments where I try to get people to raise their hands. Let's see how many really honest people there are in the room. Okay. Oh, your hand's already up. You don't even know the question. How many people in this room are Kellen? Yeah, see, his hand is already up. How many of you have ever said something you wish you could take back? Oh, come on. Oh, man. 
Why? Why? Have you ever heard just terrible stuff fall out of your face? And even as you're saying it, part of your brain is going, what are you doing? What are you saying? You're married to this person. You have to live the rest of your life with her. Why are you saying these evil things to her? Right? That's my mother. Why am I saying these terrible things to her? That's my next door neighbor. He's going to be living here for another 20 years. And I'm out here across the fence just talking him down like crazy. Yeah, we, we say these horrible things. Do you know why? Because Paul has already said with our tongues we keep deceiving and there's poison like the poisonous snake's venom under our lips. That's why all this killing stuff comes out of our mouths. Have you ever really, really sliced somebody up with your words? I mean, really done some damage. Yeah. It's because it's your nature. It's in your mouth. It's in your tongue because your throat is like an open grave. All of this evil comes out of it. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace, peace with God... They have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. What is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of God. God. Bible says natural men have no fear of God. So let's put those two together. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, and they don't have any fear of God. What does that say about their relative wisdom? No wisdom. No wisdom. That's why he said, the fool has said there is no God. Because if you walk around thinking there's no God, and you don't have the knowledge, the understanding of how this all got here, and what life is all about, and why any of us are here, if you don't know that, you're a fool. You have no wisdom at all. And I don't care if you're carrying a PhD. And I don't care if you can talk trigonometry, which I can't. I don't care how smart you are by the world's estimation. If you don't know God, you're a fool. And it says it right here. Now, here's one of those places where Paul is going to use the word nomos. Now we know that whatever the law says, when he says whatever the law says, he's referring to what he has just quoted. From the Psalms and a bit of Isaiah, which is actually what he considers at this point the law. So the way he is using the word nomos isn't referring to the Ten Commandments. It's not even referring to the 613 ordinances. It's referring collectively to the Old Testament. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who is that? The Jews. They're the ones that are under that law. So we know that whatever the law says, it's saying it to those who are under the law. That's his way of saying everything I just quoted applies to you Jews. That every mouth, Jew and Gentile, every mouth may be closed. And that all the world, Jew and Gentile, may become accountable to God. Because... By the works of the nomos. Okay, now he seems to be referring to the law of Moses. Because now he says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Please, people, please. Come here. Come here. Really, give up on yourself. Because we all are just intrinsically legalists. It's built into us that we think we're somehow a little bit better than other people and that God must recognize that we are a little bit better because we have this collection of things we did over here. And when we look at that collection of things, we think, well, those are pretty good things. And those things I did are in accordance with the very law of God. Here, I'll make it easy for you. The law says, thou shall not kill. How many of you have ever killed? That'd be nobody. 
Okay, so none of us have ever killed. Does that become a source of pride? Does that become a source of self-justification? Does that become a source of, well, you know, that, that's a rule, and I kept that rule. I don't commit adultery. Here's a tough one. I don't lust after my neighbor's stuff. Oh, oh, you've probably done that, huh? Yeah, suddenly you realize the more you get into what the law says about things like coveting, Paul says, I wouldn't have known that I was guilty of coveting except that the law said don't covet, and that's when I came to the realization that I covet, and that it was wrong to be coveting. Because by the works of the law, by the standard of the righteousness of God that is demonstrated on Mount Sinai, by the works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. Okay, now understand what Paul has just done. He has just said, no one's good, no, not one. And then he said, no one's going to be justified by their own actions and works. See what he's doing? He's cornering everybody. He's making it clear that first off, you don't do anything that's good. And secondly, even if you did something that was relatively good, that by the law was good, that still doesn't count because you can't be justified that way. So what are you going to do when you stand in front of a completely holy and righteous God and he demands perfect holiness from you? Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of God. Not going to do it. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who were trying they were actually attempting to keep the law. And he said, that's not good enough. And you're not good enough. And the righteousness God expects is even better than them. So again, Jesus, Paul, the Old Testament, all agree that human beings not only can't justify themselves because they're so wicked, but even the law can't help you because, as James says, if you miss it in any one point, you're guilty of the whole law. And you all just got really uncomfortable when I brought up the coveting thing. So even if you've done some of the law, if you broke it in any one part, you're under the curse of the law. Okay, feel good message so far, huh? You enjoying this so far? Just beating you down because that's exactly what Paul does because Paul wants to get you to the place where you will utterly give up on yourself, where you will take sides with God against yourself. And you will recognize your own sinfulness, your own depravity, and your own desperation because you desperately need not a helper. You don't need somebody to come along and make you or encourage you to do better. That's not going to help you. You're not looking for a life coach. You're looking for a savior because you are desperately wicked. The thoughts of your mind, the speech of your mouth, the intentions of your heart are all coming from your wicked nature. And because your nature is wicked, you can't do anything that's not, ipso facto, wicked. And you can't, no matter how hard you try, be justified by anything you do. Even if God says, this is what righteousness looks like. These are the Ten Commandments in stone. These are the 613 ordinances. And then he gets into the social ordinances. And he gets into the religious ordinances. And he gives them the entire societal layout for Israel to follow. Even if you could follow that, you can't be justified by it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I've been saying for a whole lot of years, I could do one of those Superman moments right now and like rip my shirt open and show you my T-shirt. I've been saying for a lot of years now, it's Jesus plus nothing. And that means not plus your works, not plus your righteousness, not plus your holiness, not plus your self-justification, not plus your intelligence, not plus 
your adherence to the perfectly correct doctrinal position. Did you get that one? It's not any of that. Or else we'd have to say, well, it's something in you. You added to it. You did something. It's Jesus plus you. There's no participation by you. Christ is your Savior, your complete Savior, your utterly perfect Savior. You are the one being saved. And if you want to understand that language of being saved, ask yourself what you could do for yourself after you have gone under the water for the third time. When you're a drowning man and you've got no hope and your lungs are filling with water, if somebody reaches down into the water and pulls you up to the boat or pulls you up to shore, they just saved you because you were incapable of doing anything to help yourself. That's the language of salvation. When you reach the point where there's nothing you can do, where you are a dead man walking, when you reach that point and somebody allows that you might spend eternity in the light that no man approaches, through his work, through his effort, you might actually stand before God fully justified, fully made righteous, fully accepted, fully redeemed. Well, that, my friends, is what I'm describing as a savior. Amen. And that's a savior you need. I had a friend who was a pastor for years up at the big Lutheran church up on Music Row. He quit the ministry. His reason for leaving the ministry, he said, was, I got tired of having to tell people bad news in order to tell them good news. The eminent theologian Jimmy Swaggart once said, you know, if the doctrine of total depravity is true, then the other doctrines of Calvinism must be true. And then he went on to explain why total depravity wasn't true, because he certainly was no Calvinist. You see, people don't like the way the Bible just describes us. Incapable. Evil. Throats like open graves. Walking in darkness after the prince of the power of the air. People don't like that description of us. But as long as you hold on to any idea that you are somehow slightly good, that you are somehow slightly capable, that you are slightly able to justify yourself to that degree, you don't need a savior because you can do it yourself. For all the preachers and theologies out there that tell poor sinners, do better. You can't do better. This is you. This is what you're like. And what you need is not to be coached up. What you need is a savior. Is that clear enough? That's the importance of Christianity. Christianity is not about getting a bigger car or getting a bigger house or your kids are going to run faster and jump higher or you're always going to have a happy life and you know, you're never going to be sick and name it, claim it. And that, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about you're a human and that means you're depraved and that means you're going to be judged and you need somebody to stand in the gap between you and a holy, perfectly righteous God and you need someone to intervene for you. You need somebody to plead your case because you don't have a case to plead. That's the importance of Jesus. That's why I tell people, Jesus, you need Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Look, I can, I can tap dance and baffle you with language and stir you up with doctrine. I can bring out books from my library, big, thick tomes by old dead guys. I can dazzle you with theology from now until the day I draw my last breath. And all that is is just empty verbiage unless you have Jesus. You need Jesus. It all comes back to you need Jesus. Amen. Now you'll notice what Paul is about to do. 
He's about to introduce that very idea. What you need because of your condition, what you need is a savior. What you need is somebody to stand in that gap. But you'll notice what Paul does not do. Having explained the human condition, having explained our desperate need and our own incapability, having explained all that, he does not go directly to election, predestination. He doesn't go there. Where does he go? Jesus. He goes right to Jesus. Because the reality of the basis of the gospel is, you're a sinner, you need to be saved. And it's that simple. It's that easy. If you can see within yourself that you've got nothing that you can plead before God, and you embrace, you have faith, you have confidence in the fact that Jesus is a perfect Savior who saves perfectly, that is the very essence of the gospel. And if you have faith in that, Paul's going to say, that's how you get saved. Now, granted, when we get to chapter 8, when we get to chapter 9, he's going to start introducing all of the complexities of higher theology, sound doctrine. Then he's going to say, if in fact you have had faith in Christ, it's because he chose you, not you chose him, and he chose you before the foundation of the world, and he elected you, and your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, all of which is evidenced by the fact that you have faith in Jesus Christ. But it all comes back to the starting point of have faith in Jesus Christ. And I can tell anybody that. When people talk to me about the Bible, I don't start at Revelation. I start at Jesus. I don't start at, there was a flood. I swear, I can prove it. I, that's not the place to start. I don't start with the history of Israel. I start with Jesus. I start with, you're a sinner. You're in desperate need. And the answer to your cancer is Jesus. The answer to what's killing you is Jesus. The answer to your hopes for eternity is Jesus. And there's not a one of us in here who's not making a beeline for eternity. Might as well get used to that. Nobody's going to just keep on living. That means you're going to eternity like it or not. And by taking thought or by exercising or by eating right, you can't add one day to your life. You're going to go when it's time for you to go. And then you're going to stand before the absolutely righteous, holy God. And what in the world are you going to plead? Are you going to say, didn't I do stuff? What a mistake that would be. Because Jesus said when people do that, I'm going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. What do you got? You got to plead Christ. You got to be found in Christ and Christ in you. And if you don't have that, you got no hope. But if you do have that, that's where the good news kicks in. If you do have that, if that is your hope, if that is your faith, if that is your confidence, if that's what you're willing to cast yourself out into eternity on, if you got that, you've got everything. Because that makes you a joint heir with Christ. And what does Christ own? Everything. Why wouldn't anybody take that deal? I've just laid out the basic bargain. You've got nothing, no hope, no ability, can't justify yourself. There's no way, no way, no way. But Jesus is the answer. Who wouldn't take that deal? Depraved, wretched, evil people. So again, I say, you're either saved or you're in the dark and there's nothing in the middle. Let's read. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the answer to the question, what's the point of the law? What's the purpose of the law? The law had one point. Which was God demonstrating that even if he laid it out to people and said, this is what righteousness looks like, do it. That no one would do it. 
No one could do it. No one has the capacity to do it. So what does that show? That shows that human beings are sinful. And the knowledge of sin came through the law. That was the whole point and purpose of the law. I'm going to say again, since Paul has just said you can't be justified by the law, the purpose of the law was never to save people. And yet, there are preachers behind pulpits thundering down from Sinai Telling people to not only do better, but just to obey the law. And if they obey the law, then they can make themselves righteous enough that God will accept them. That's wrong. Because not only can you not be justified by the law, but the purpose of the law was never to save anybody. The purpose of the law was to show people how sinful they are. Because, as Paul says, the law was a schoolmaster. Pedagogos is the Greek word. It's that slave within the household that would make sure that the kids got to school so that they'd be educated. They'd take them by the hand and take them to the place where the education was. That's what the law is. The law is taking people by the hand to Christ in order to represent to them that they can't do it, that they're incapable. That's what the law does. The law serves the purpose of God in representing or in demonstrating the perfection of his son. Look, if you could be saved by the law, if you could be justified by the law, why would you need Jesus? What you'd need is a good pep talk. What you'd need is to get busy. And way too much of what disguises itself as Christianity in America these days is based on get busy. And that's wrong. But now, oh man, I love this statement. Okay, for three weeks we've been doing bad news, right? Here comes the good news. But now, but now, when? Now, according to Paul, now, in this period of time, now that Christ has come and died and resurrected, now that he has risen to the right hand of God ever to make intercession for us, now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being testified to, being witnessed. That's what that word means. It's been shown, it's been demonstrated by the law and the prophets. In other words, that's Paul saying the Old Testament says the same thing I'm saying. I'm saying that the righteousness of God can be manifested separate from the law. The law can't save you. The law can't justify you. No one's ever been justified by the law. So then is the answer that nobody can be justified? No, the answer is now God is going to demonstrate the righteousness of God without the law. And how is he going to do that? By faith. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being testified to, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, Jew or Gentile, the answer is Christ. The answer is faith in Christ. Now, by the way, in our English translations, you'll see the word faith there. That is the word pistis in the Greek language. And then you'll see where Paul says, to all those who believe. That's the verb. That is actually the Greek word pisteo. It's the exact same word in a verbal tense. But the English language doesn't have a verb form of the word faith. We have the noun form, faith. But we don't have faith thing as a thing, as an action. So we're stuck with the word believe. And in too much of religion in America, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. But notice how specific Paul was. Your faith has to be planted and rooted in Jesus Christ. And then to all those who have faith in Jesus Christ, that's the believing word, the peace to all word, to all those who have that faith in Jesus Christ, there is no distinction, Jew and Gentile. Verse 23, for all have sinned 
and they all fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift. Oh, there it was. That was your amen moment. That was it. You missed it. It went right by you. That was your moment. That was your moment to jump up on your chairs and scream amen. You've never heard better news in your stupid little life than the fact that you can be justified as a gift. You can't be justified by the law. You can't be justified by your works. You can't be justified by your heart, your mind, your knowledge. Your soul. You, you can't do it. You can't do it. So where is justification going to come from? Since it can't be in you and since it can't be by the law and since it can't be by your works, where is justification going to come from? It's going to be yours as a gift given to you free for nothing. Now, I do like the phrase, I have to add, Salvation is free to you, free to me. But it was purchased with a very, very high price. Amen. It's just that you didn't pay it. That's grace. That's grace. Of course, the Catholic notion is the idea that you will have to pay for some of it. You know, you go into purgatory for a while and you purge your sins. That's where that purgatory word comes from. So, you know, Jesus did his part, but then you just kept sinning. And so you've got to go to purgatory for a while and pay for your own sins. So between you and Jesus, you end up getting you saved. That's not a gift. Yeah. No, that's you got to do it. Because again... Our egocentric fleshly minds want so badly to do something, to take credit for something. Our ego can't believe that there wasn't something we did that separated us from everybody else. Doggone it, I'm just better than Callan. And pretty much everybody in the room could say that at this moment. <laughs> and, but it's a gift. And look at what kind of gift it is. Being justified as a gift by his grace. Got to talk about that charis word for just a moment. Because Paul is going to say that the law and grace are antithetical. It was very gracious of God to give the law. But in the law, which says do it or die, there's no grace to that. And to whatever degree you can say you've earned something, that's not grace. What you've earned, according to Paul, the wages of sin, what you've earned by your sin is death. But through Christ, by Christ, you get the free gift. And in order for it to be genuinely grace, there can't be anything in you that deserved it. It can't be a payment. It can't be something you earned in order for it to be grace. Otherwise, says Paul, grace is not grace. So in order for grace to truly be grace, you have to be completely, utterly undeserving of it. And if you're truly, genuinely undeserving of the free gift of eternal life, and then you get it anyway, that's grace, 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 grace. That's why it's on our sign. It's why it's on our website. It's why we are so firmly convinced that it has to be the grace of God because we just read what human beings are like. So whatever other theology you develop, whatever other philosophy you build up, if it isn't, men are completely incapable and sinful and salvation is a work of grace, grace, grace. If it's anything other than that, it's wrong. Because it's adding to what the Bible actually says. The Bible is so simple in saying that redemption came as a matter of grace, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 24, it is in Christ Jesus. I keep saying, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Verse 25 says, this Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. We're going to pick up there next week. And we will talk about what that means to be a propitiation. And what that means that God utterly and completely expiated your sin. And what it means that God had been predicting that through the Ark of the Covenant 
for 1,400 years. And that again, Paul is not introducing anything new. Paul is just continuing to develop the theology that the Old Testament already has in it. But I'm going to say this one more time and make it as plain and simple as I can make it. You bad. God good. What are you going to do about that? Savior, intercessor, mediator, redeemer, advocate. He did it all. The only thing you brought to the party was your depravity. You need Jesus. And that's the gospel. Amen. Questions? Or was it really that clear? <laughs> Good, bad. That kind of cleared it up, didn't it? <laughs> All right, then. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.